0: This chapter begins with the word therefore, which indicates that Paul is building on the argument of the previous chapter. In chapter 3, Paul talked about the glorious ministry to which he had been called. He was a minister of the new covenant, a covenant which is superior to the old covenant in every way. The old covenant was broken as soon as it was made, but the new covenant will be kept, of course, by God, but also by the born-again, spirit-filled believers who have entered into it. The glory of the Old Covenant was fading away, as it were, whereas the New is fixed and permanent. The Old Covenant was a matter of law, but the New Covenant is a matter of the Spirit. Paul was mediating powerful, long-looked-for things, and therefore he is very bold. That was the argument in chapter 3. Here, the argument runs parallel. Because of all those same wonderful, glorious things, Paul also does not lose heart. He says that at the beginning and at the end of the chapter. See verse 1 and also verse 16. They form a set of brackets. That's the theme of the chapter. Despite the rejection he suffers, despite the suffering he endures, despite the death he daily faces, Paul does not lose heart. And the implication, of course, is that if we are ministers of this same gospel, then neither should we. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In the face of Jesus Christ. So, again, the basic idea here is that being entrusted with such powerful and precious truths and resources as he has been, Paul does not lose heart, despite that he has suffered many things, despite that he is walking a narrow uphill road, despite that his message has been rejected by many people who might have been expected to embrace it. Yes, 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 there have been many persecutions, disappointments, and difficulties. But all of this is to be expected. After all, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, That's me in a nutshell, Paul says. I've had many tribulations, but through the grace of God in Christ, I have overcome. And that is what marks me out as an apostle. Assuming that Paul is answering his critics again here who have raised questions about this standing on the basis of his many personal trials, Paul Barnett says hopefully, Paul will argue that, on the contrary, his endurance in the sufferings of ministry mark the apostle as a genuine servant of Christ whose own sufferings are now reproduced in the ministry of the one who represents him, close quote. Yes, and so Paul is not hiding his sufferings. He is standing firm within them. Endurance is what characterizes the Christian, not unmixed joy and unwavering triumph. Endurance. What is faith if it is not tested? Faith is only faith in the fire. And so there will always be a little fire in the life of a true believer and even more so in the life of a true apostle. And so we are not deterred by that, Paul says, and we certainly are not tempted to make use of spurious means to avoid that or to compensate for that. Perhaps here Paul is speaking polemically against the false apostles to whom these people have been exposed. They relied heavily on style and technique. They had the PR side of ministry down, Paul says. But did they tell you the truth? Did they preach and model the cross. We preached the gospel openly and truthfully. Can they say the same? Now, as for response, of course, no human being can control such things. There may have been a question raised by the majority Roman church as to why so few of the local Jewish people had embraced this gospel, arising, as it did, out of the soil of Old Testament Judaism. Paul says that the answer is that the gospel is veiled to some. They cannot see it. The God of this age has blinded their eyes. And then Paul appears to speak biographically, recalling the time when a blinding light knocked him down and arrested him in his arrogance and defiance. Don't give up hope for those people, Paul says, because I know for a fact that light can shine into darkness and can immediately transform, completely turn around. Even the foulest of men, I speak from experience, he says. God has shone in my heart the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that is our message now, he contends. We simply seek to share some of the light that has been graciously given to us. It's all about the light. It was never about the vessel. That's the point he begins to make now in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's just pause here for a moment. This verse is so important that it warrants some extended reflection. Paul is saying here that the gospel is so powerful that it must be carried in a certain kind of vessel lest people mistakenly put their trust in the messenger instead of the message. George Guthrie is excellent here. He says, the fragility of the human minister thus serves to keep the focus on the God of the gospel not his messenger, Close quote. That's it exactly. See, the gospel is powerful. The gospel changes people. The gospel breaks bonds and restores nature. The gospel implants new affections. It is nothing short of miraculous. And so the danger in dealing in such powers is considerable. Intentionally or not, the people affected by the gospel are going to be inclined to associate the changes they've experienced with the person and power of the messenger. You know, I, I, I once was lost, but then Pastor Bob found me. I, I was confused, but Pastor Bob taught me. I was weak, but Pastor Bob gave me confidence. Uh, no, he did not. Pastor Bob is just a waiter. He brought you life-giving food from the table of God. And that needs to be understood. And, and so God typically ordains for Pastor Bob to walk with a limp. That's the idea that Paul is trying to get across here. If one is called into gospel ministry, then one should expect to handle great powers and to be afflicted with great weakness. Paul begins to say that very thing in verse 8 and following. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. There's some wordplay in verses 8 to 9 in the original Greek that just does not pass over into English, but the basic idea is fairly straightforward. Paul is saying that gospel ministers can expect to experience serious but supervised affliction. God wills for you to share in the brokenness of the world, but not to be destroyed by it. He wills for you to display gospel hope and power in situations of suffering and weakness. Scott Hafferman says helpfully here, the contrasts of chapter 4 verses 8 to 9 underscore that during this evil age it is endurance in the midst of adversity not immediate miraculous deliverance from it that reveals most profoundly the power of god Close quote in his excellent commentary in the niv application series hafferman has an extended discussion about the function and frequency of suffering in the life of the minister identifying the default prosperity gospel that is so common in the church today, he says, Though we do not often express it overtly, deep down we are still convinced that if we just had enough faith, we should be able to beat or avoid the adversity around us. We believe somehow that true followers of Christ should not have to endure the kind of health problems and heartache known to our neighbors. At least our marriages should work and all our children should be Christians. This health and wealth assumption is even more evident in regard to pastors, both in terms of our expectations for them and in regard to their own self-understandings. Yet from Paul's perspective, the dominant characteristic of those in whom God is mightily at work is their confident endurance in the midst of adversity. Our pastors are to model perseverance, not personality, morality, not Miracles. Closed quote. Yes, amen to that. Being a pastor doesn't mean that your wife doesn't get sick or that all your kids are going to have a straight path to glory. In fact, in the providence of God, the road of a pastor is often marked by more than the average amount of hardship and suffering. It is through these cracks that the glory of the gospel shines all the brighter. It is in weakness, suffering, and heartache that the comfort of the gospel is experienced in greater measure so as to be shared in greater measure. So when he says at the end of the paragraph, death is at work in us, but life in you, he is linking back to what he said in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. He said there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So Paul said that the more he suffers, the more gospel power and comfort he experiences, the more he receives and therefore the more gospel power and comfort he is able to share and thus the ultimate beneficiaries of his sufferings are the Corinthians themselves. Listen, as a pastor, I almost hate to verbalize it, but Paul's point here seems to be that the more the minister suffers, the better it is for the people that he's preaching to. Death in us is life for you. That's true for the apostle. That's true for preachers. That's true for parents or or lay evangelists. That's true for anyone involved in gospel ministry. All of the suffering you experience is going to make you lean closer upon the cross. It's going to make you hope more urgently in the resurrection. It's going to make you drink more deeply of the waters of eternal life. It is going to make you more effective, more powerful, more fruitful in gospel ministry. Thanks be to God. In verse 13, Paul is quoting from Psalm 115, verse 1 in the Septuagint, which corresponds to Psalm 116, verse 10 in our modern English Bibles. The verse in full reads as follows, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Now, occasionally you'll hear people citing the first half of this verse to justify their general outspokenness. You know, whatever I think, that's what I say. Uh, That's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, he is again standing in line with the Old Testament prophets. As they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God and so spoke as divine messengers of God, even though afflicted in life, so also does he. Paul is willing to speak from a position of weakness and from the midst of adversity because he knows that even if he should be put to death for his faith, he who raised Jesus from the dead will raise him also. What reason then could there be for timidity or despondency? Death for Paul will simply be the fulfillment of a charge and entry into eternal reward. It was certainly nothing to be feared, and the prospect of death was no good reason to forsake preaching the gospel. On the contrary, Paul does all that he does for their eternal good and God's eternal glory. That's the goal toward which the apostle has ever been striving. He wants his preaching and modeling of the gospel to result in glad and grateful reception among the Corinthians, but also among others through the Corinthians. As each one is reached, he or she has the opportunity to reach others, all of whom may then join in the chorus of thanksgiving and gratitude to God. What a beautiful picture and what a worthy ambition. It is one worth living for and one worth dying for. It is not a price to be paid, but a privilege to be embraced. That's Paul's perspective, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, as I mentioned, verses 1 and 16 form a set of brackets. Everything in chapter 4 is explaining to the Corinthians and to us why Paul does not lose heart. He does not lose heart because his commission comes from no less an authority than God himself. He does not lose heart because he has been called to faithfulness, not to produce certain results. He does not lose heart because the Lord is filling him with supernatural strength and endurance. He does not lose heart because his personal weakness keeps the focus on the power and majesty of Christ. He does not lose heart because his sufferings are supervised and limited by a wise and loving God. He does not lose heart because even if he should be killed for serving the Lord, God will raise him up on the last day. He does not lose heart because through his ministry, more and more people are responding to the gospel, giving thanks to the glory of God. And finally, he does not lose heart because even while his body may be failing and fading away, his spirit is healing and maturing day by day. Matthew Henry says marvelously here, It is our happiness if the decays of the outward man do contribute to the renewing of the inward man, if afflictions outwardly are gained to us inwardly, if when the body is sick and weak and perishing, the soul is vigorous and prosperous. The best of men have need of further renewing of the inward man, even day by day. Where the good work is begun, there is more work to be done for carrying it forward. And as in wicked men, things grow every day worse and worse. So in godly men, they grow better and better. Quote. William Barclay expresses a similar sentiment. He says here, the years which take away physical beauty should add spiritual beauty. Quote. That's it exactly. Yes, Paul says, it is true that the years of my ministry have been hard and trying years, on the body at least. But it is also true that these experiences of suffering and affliction have accelerated my spiritual growth. I'm a better man inside, even if my outer appearance has seen better days. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul sets a wonderful example for all those who would serve and follow Christ in this fallen world. So often when bad things happen to us, we spend a great deal of time asking Why? Whereas Paul spent most of his time asking, how? Lord, how will you use this suffering to magnify the cross of Jesus Christ? Lord, how will you show resurrection power in and through this difficult trial? How will you use this pain to better prepare me to show love and gospel comfort to other people? Those are better questions than most of us are typically asking, and they reveal better thinking than most of us are typically engaging in. I love what David Garland says here. He says, Paul reads the cross into all his experiences and interprets the ups and downs of his ministry theologically as carrying around in his body the death of Jesus to manifest the life, the resurrection of Jesus. All his suffering is part of God's design to spread the gospel. Close quote. What a wonderful perspective, what a high bar, and what a stirring challenge. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation.